I, I told Mike when you got on, I was like, hey, I recognize him. Because a lot of times you get people and you, you know them from podcasts and stuff like that. You don't ever, like, actually see them in person or see pictures of them that frequently. I can't hear you, Scott. You're muted, I think. There you go. But I, I read your I've read your books and listened to you on podcasts. So I mean, really, that that's that counts for something. <laughs> At least get a few bucks that way. Uh, cool. Well, I don't know what it's going to look like. People are going to filter in. Uh, we got a little bit of like just things I'll breeze through on a uh, agenda. And I'll try to do it in like two minutes or less so that we can get on to talking to you guys because you guys are way more fun to talk about than uh, things like we have going on. But um, uh, thank you to everybody that came to last month's meeting. It was kind of the Bruce and a get together. Um, make sure we're recording. Yep, we are. And then um, somebody is typing too. I'm not going to hear it. Um, so first off, we have some things coming up this year down the pipe. Um, we're working on a merch page, working on some more stuff. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But uh, one thing that's coming up is we're getting a chance to get featured on the Velocity Show again. So we're looking for about three to five people. We're going to test out the Brewer's Thumbprint. Uh, I think the idea is that we're all going to brew the same recipe that Martin made for his, uh, I think it's English IPA. And then we're going to send it to him and him and his buddy Norm are going to taste them all and kind of rank them through them and see... Uh, how much is going on? Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Average Brews Kentucky Common Survey is live, so get your votes in if you want to have a say in what goes into your Kentucky Common. I've only ever had about two of them, so I have no idea much about this style, so it'll be kind of fun to brew. Um, if Trevor's on here, he can talk about the new competition circuit, but I don't see Trevor, so we'll just say some of y'all know there was a meeting that came out a few weeks ago. We'll get it posted up so you can go rewatch it. Uh, about the kind of our own little internal competition circuit that'll be kind of fun. Um, there's also the Mashy Luck thing with uh, Basic Brewing Radio that we're talking about. And so um, if you want any more information about that, reach out to Haven. Um, and if you didn't know we had a Discord server, you should check it out. So cool. Um, all right. Well, we have uh, the guys from Sapwood Sellers here. We have Mike, we have Scott. Uh, and so uh, they're here to answer some questions, I believe, because that's what Haven set me up with. Is that right, Haven? Yes. Um, Mike and Scott, thank you guys so much. I know it's been a, a long time coming trying to get both of you on. So I'm glad uh, glad to be here. Glad to have you both here. Um, I suppose just, I mean, I think we all kind of know a little bit about you, but just a, a brief history and then we can go into questions. And I know you had, you just had some topics if, if we'd run out of questions. Certainly don't think we will, but uh, um I guess welcome Mike and Scott. Thanks for having us. And uh, if if it comes to it, we can talk about our first uh, Kentucky Common that we released uh, a couple of weeks ago. Hey, there we go. Yeah, uh, sounds like a lead-in if I've ever heard one. So what what did what did <laughs> what went into your Kentucky Common of a few weeks ago? Because I actually, now that you've said it, I'm curious. And how many? Uh, Kentucky Commons in the wild have you had before you went out and tried to design one? Because that's not something I see a lot, at least in my neck of the woods. No, I, I've only had one or two. And um, actually, uh, regulars dropped off a can from another local brewery, uh, Pipe the Side, that had done one, although theirs was dry hopped with Chinook and Cascade or something like that. So not a, a particularly authentic uh, rendition of it. Um, 
we uh, we always try to do something sort of special for our beer, um, whether that's you know a higher hopping rate or like a real unique variety or aged in a really cool barrel. Um, and for something like a Kentucky Common, there really isn't something special we could do for the process or anything like that. So we went with local malt. Um, we work with a place down in Charlottesville, Virginia called Murphy and Rude. Um, they do six row malt. They do uh, malted corn. We've used their bloody butcher before and a cream ale. They just sort of had a standard yellow maize that was malted. Um, and then just a little bit of, they do um, like a dark uh, honey malt, car caramel, uh, and a chocolate wheat malt. And uh, we probably didn't do the sort of authentic thing, which is to serve the beer really fresh. Um, traditionally, it's a running beer that would be sort of like brewed and fermented and consumed within a week or two. Um, our brewing schedule got a little uh, wacky and it ended up being lagered for about a month before we had a spot in the sort of uh, light, slightly malty, uh, sort of tap line. Um, and so we held on to it for a while. It's like super crisp and clean and just a little bit malty. Um, honestly, it's probably closer to something like uh, a yingling or something like that with a little bit more oomph behind it. Uh, but it's just like a, a clean, um, the malted corn, I really get like a cornflakes kind of thing, like a cornflake cereal sort of note to it. And then just a little bit of that sort of darker malt thing, but without being like overtly chocolatey or overtly um, roasty or anything like that. I'm sold. Can't wait to get my can in the mail. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you guys are known kind of like as the, you know, I mean, Mike, obviously you're, you have a book about sours. You're kind of known about the, the, the sour specialist. I know, Scott, you have a whole book about IPA. So I, I know that kind of pigeonholes y'all in a couple of things. Uh, not to say that y'all are just those things. So, so what kind of, um, y'all, I know those are kind of your bread and butter, but like y'all really try to stray out um, and do things like Kentucky Common, Cream Ale, and try to do some of those more uh, typical styles versus what you guys are more known for? I think so. I think especially now, um, the last couple of years, then, er, you know, early on, I think we do a lot more of those kind of styles. And I think we've learned too, just like trying to get uh, people into the tap room and, and trying to keep a lot of people uh, happy. It's nice to have a broad variety of styles. You know, I, I you know, just having uh, mixed fermentation beers and double IPAs and IPAs would make some people happy, but we might get the 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 no, I'm not going there. If if there's a group of uh, you know uh, people from uh, work that are going to come drop by, and you know all we have is mixed fermentation beers they've never heard of, or they don't like hoppy beers. So um, you know it's fun to brew all all the different styles, and and at some point too, you're you're trying to please. You're trying to have a beer on the tap list that'll please uh, a lot of different people. And at this point, too, we've got three full-time brewers. We've uh, had a long-time uh, taproom manager, Spencer, who was a home brewer. They're the ones who often pitch these sort of wackier ones. Um, I think, I can't remember if Spencer was the uh, the Kentucky Common idea. But, you know, that's part of being, uh, one of the differences between being a home brewer and being a professional brewer is that you're not just brewing what you're interested in if, you know, the staff get excited about something or an ingredient or whatever, um, there's a value uh, in saying, yeah, let's run with it. If that's what you're excited about, let's see how it goes. Let's see how we like it when it turns out and we can sort of tweak it from there or brew it again if it's a hit or say, hey, that was a fun one off if uh, we end up dumping a couple of kegs down the uh, drain after three months of no one drinking it. Right. And, and we have a we have a 10 barrel system and typically we're doing, um, you know, two turns and doing fill in 20 barrel tanks. 
but to do one 10 barrel batch of something is not a, a huge risk. Um, and so, you know, it's you, a handful of uh, cases of cans and kegs like that's, you know, we can we can sell that. And I think that's not a, a you know, something we're too worried about. So that's why, like Mike said, if someone's really passionate or interested in a certain type of beer, then um, honestly it makes us kind of poke around and, and learn a little bit more about that style too, to, to try to brew the best version of it. Cool. Um, guys, y'all raise your hands or throw them in the chat or, or however y'all want to ask questions. Um, don't, don't be shy. Um, but I'm happy to, to lead us wherever we go. Um, so you, you said like, you know, you kind of get inspired by ingredients. Is that kind of the, you said somebody usually pitches an idea and then you'll just go down a process or is there a typical like uh, meeting I'll have once a month to kind of come up with these ideas for new recipes or new styles y'all want to try or? Uh, we're, we're a very uh, email kind of thing. And so usually I send out an email that's like, hey, there's an IPA on the schedule for this week or honestly, maybe we brewed one last week. Does anyone have ideas on what hops you want to use on, um, you know, if there are new yeast strains out there? And then I'll say, hey, there's an open 10 barrel fermenter. We're getting light on something that's light and refreshing and easy drinking. We haven't done the Kolsch in a while. That was a big hit. So that's going to be our default. But if anyone else uh, wants to um, have a counter proposal, you know, let's go with that. Um, one of the big things we do is variants. So every Thursday we put out something new. Um, Scott got us a little two-barrel tank, so sometimes it's, you know, we just use the Bootleg Biology Secret Clubhouse blend on two barrels of wort that we peeled off of a pale ale, but it might be, um, hey, there's one keg left of this IPA, uh, the new IPA is coming on, so we want to get this one off, who's got an idea of a fruit, a spice, uh, uh, let's throw some cinnamar in it, make it a black IPA, let's um, throw some bread in it for six months and see what happens, let's uh, throw it on uh, the 20 pounds of coffee that just came out of that tank from Imperial Stout and use, you know, use all 20 pounds and just 15 gallons of beer. Um, and a lot of those things eventually, well, not maybe not a lot of them, some of those things turn into bigger things. So um, we do a beer called Orange Juiciest that's just our double IPA with orange juice, orange zest, vanilla beans, um, like a real sort of milkshake kind of thing, but without lactose. And that was originally like a 15 gallon, you know, went on tap on a Thursday, was gone by Friday. And now it's a 10 barrel batch thing, occasionally a 20 barrel batch kind of thing. Well, that's awesome. Because two barrels is pretty much nothing uh, for you guys, I'm sure, to turn around. So, Brett, what you got, man? Or Brent, what you got? Yeah, I found the, I found the, the mute button there. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I, got, I actually got one, something going with that uh, secret clubhouse. When I'm a little curious how I got. I did the uh, trios, put that video on YouTube. But but this was oh, my question. I guess it's, it's probably for Scott. It's, it's probably for both of you too. But I know, I know you talked a lot about um, the cold dry hopping, and I think that, that article you put out. I see that getting reposted a lot. Um, I, I'm a little curious, like your your opinions on you know, like dry hopping, you know, at, at the homebrew level, because I, I know I've heard you talk about it, and you're dry hopping pretty cold, you know, below you know 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're you're rousing and, and you guys have system to, to drop yeast. And a lot of us home brewers, you know, we're, we're just in a fermenter that would put the yeast and whatever trove is settled out to the bottom. And we're, so I can't, I don't have a system where I can rouse up. And, and I've tried, I've tried dropping, dry hopping cold. And I feel like the hops just kind of drop to the bottom of the fermenter. I don't quite get you know, the characters I want. So I guess, I guess I wonder if you have any like 
tips from as a home brewer, like what your experience on, on how a good process for dry hopping, uh, especially talking like hazy IPAs or heavily hop, you know, IPAs. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, we we kind of do a like Mike was talking about with the variants. That's that's kind of like a um, a homebrew approach in some ways, where we're we're basically just taking one single keg, um, but we're kegging the beer off the yeast, and I think that's the key to that. So, like, if you have the ability to, um, you know, ferment in in one vessel, kind of crash that out and tr transfer into a keg on two hops. Um, I think then if, if that keg is cold, then you'd be able to rouse that without without worrying about getting yeast and stuff back up into that that beer. So then then you could almost just um, a lot of times we'll have one half barrel. Uh, it's a brink essentially. So it's just like a, a keg that we can open up and, you know, put hops in, in inside of. Um, but we'll once two, three times a day, if we walk by that keg in the cold room, we'll kind of shake it, roll it around, set it on its side, do something like that. Because like you said, when if you're dry hopping or experimenting with dry hopping cold, especially below 40, it seems like those hops just really want to settle out rather quickly. Um, and so I think that's where agitation is is key to try to get good extraction from them. Um, and so you know, as a home brewer, if, if you can get into a keg, um, without yeast and, and that keg is kept cold and you just kind of rouse it, uh, that, that might um, be a good way to, to approach it. Um, you could also try like shooting CO2 through um, a dip tube or something like that too, but um, everyone's setup is so dramatically different on, on a homebrew scale, so it's almost more of a, um, on a case-to-case -case basis, I think, to, to try to get the best extraction. So, so then would you recommend, you know, moving it then into a serving keg from that dry hop keg? Uh, from a serving, uh, you, you know, I as a home brewer, I used to leave them in. Um, a lot of times I, I would bag them. Um, it, once they're in the keg and just kind of settled out and you're not agitating them anymore, I'm not sure how much more they're doing. And, and the uh, risk of oxygen exposure from another transfer, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have that kind of stuff down um, now, but when I was home brewing, I, I always didn't have that process down uh, good. And so sometimes the transfer could mess up a beer. So, um, you know, and now, you, of course, like when we're doing a variant like that, we're, we're getting it off the, a lot of times we'll, we'll transfer, like if, if we want to experiment with a, um, a keg of, of beer that's not dry hopped, we'll transfer into a brink, we'll save that original keg that's keep it cold, that's empty, we'll dry hop in a brink and then transfer back into that original keg and use that as kind of like the serving keg. Um, you know, but we're we're selling these pints and so it's it's important that they're, you know, very clean and there's no hop debris um, in the pores. Um, so it's a little, little different, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how I would approach it now, but I, I definitely left the hops in. I don't know if Mike has a different thought on that. No, that's that's exactly what I did. I, I used to do like sort of mid-firm addition with pellets in primary, let ferment out, let them settle out, and then go into a keg. Um, I would use generally whole hops if I could get them, just because I always felt like they would, they don't sort of compact out quite as much, and they also aren't broken up as much. And so I figured with like six weeks in the keg before I finished it, having whole leaf hops in there, maybe I'd get less sort of green astringency less likely they would come out of the um, tube screen or the pantyhose or whatever I had them in. 
Um, we really haven't done much with whole hops at the brewery. They're just sort of not practical at our scale, but uh, we played around with them a couple of times on, you know, one-off variants and stuff. It just uh, hasn't been something we've, we've circled back on, uh, or the results haven't been good enough to cause us to circle back on them. And we'll see if I regret, I stuffed a whole bunch of mosaic whole hops into a couple of barrels of mixed firm beer maybe six months ago. And I'm not looking forward to trying to get that beer out without getting the hops uh, clogging something or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just the space of storing that, those whole cone hops is massive anyway. So that's crazy part of it. Yeah. Um, Scott, I think S, is that Steinberg? You had your hand raised, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Will. Thanks for being here. Um, I have a question about managing pH in heavily dry hop beers. Um, you know, when you add the dry hop, it'll raise pH. And if you're not uh, minding your P's and Q's, potentially you fall outside of the FDA safe range. So I guess my question is, how do you uh, manage that anticipated pH raise? Do you, um, you know, manage it on the hot side in the mash or in the kettle or on the cold side or, or both? Thanks. Do I take this one? Or you want me to? Yeah, I mean, we for for us, it's I guess to get you know the answer is probably different based on different setups, but we have a um, we're we're a direct fire system, so we get a little more color than we kind of would want um, just naturally through through that setup. So we're dropping the pH um, quite a bit um, just in the kettle um, to help keep the the color down, but that also kind of helps us set up the stage for a lower pH going into what we know will be an eventual heavy dry hop. Um, and so that's one way um, to kind of play it is just get start with a lower uh, pH right away. Um, um, but I, I will say, and we've had discussions about this at at the brewery. Sometimes the the hoppy beers that a lot of us tend to really like sometimes have a pretty high um, final pH. Um, and so I think it might just kind of be a a preference um, for a lot of people and where where that range falls. Um, but there, there's a lot of ways to, you you know, you could doctor up a beer uh, post fermentation, post dry hop too, um, to try to, to drop a pH. Um, but in terms of like an actual perfect level, I, I don't even think we uh, know exactly what, what that number is. Yeah, I, I remember we did some some dosing back in the day. And I think, I think you were fond of higher pH maybe in the pale ales, just because they tend to be a little wimpier in the, the higher pH was maybe adding some mouthfeel and maybe a lower pH in the double IPAs because they needed a little bit of snappiness to, you know, cut through the, the malt and whatever. But that's more more a question of, you know, personal preference, uh, as Scott was saying. That's awesome. I, I'm not particularly worried about um, pathogenic stuff. Um, by the time you've got that kind of alcohol, you're probably pretty safe. Um, despite the, you know, you're, you're probably not getting botulism growing. Um, so David, I saw you had your hand up and, and just to preface, David is late night in Germany right now and he's coming from uh, Nuremberg. So unless he's out of town. <laughs> hey guys, uh, really stoked to be here. Um, I had a follow-up question concerning the dry hop on a homebrew scale. So um, I recently also experienced some astringency in one of my beers uh, that I usually don't have. 
And what what I try to do to you know minimize um, cold side oxidation is I also dry hop mid to late of the end fermentation. So I ferment in a corny cake, uh, let the beer ferment out for just like two or three more days. Usually it's like pretty pretty quick, but um, then I cold crash and um, yeah let it lager and then eventually um, get the beer off the yeast after I don't know like one or two weeks. But this time I don't know. It it really was weird because before the dry hop there was a, a smash golden ale with um, Centennial and Vienna malt, really nice uh, English ale yeast. So nothing not, nothing really special there, but still it was after the dry hop and was a very very minor dry hop. So we're talking one ounce in a five gallon batch. So, but it was heavily hopped before that. I think on the hot side in Whirlpool there was like five. Oh, no, four, more four ounces of hops uh, in a five gallon batch. And um, I don't know, after the dry up, it really tasted weird and uh, sort of like really astringent, grassy, and didn't before. So I was really curious what your opinion is on that. And maybe if it's more, you know, or, or more advisable to, to dry hop after the beer has been fermenting and you know like risking a little bit of cold side oxidation what's what's your point yeah it's it's tricky i mean we without smelling the hops and knowing exactly kind of what what went in but um i you know we like was mentioned earlier we've kind of really settled in on that colder dry hop and i think that has that helps a lot with that astringent um finish that you can get um, so you said you dry hopped, you know, late fermentation. Um, so you're right. definitely the warmest that beer probably um, ever gets is when you're dry hopping. So there's a, there's a good chance that, you know, the, the, the science that's out there that I kind of rely on to that convinced us to at least try doing this was a lot of those compounds um, that lead to more of that astringent finish actually extract a little better at the warmer temperatures. Mm -hmm. um that they do at the colder temperatures but those the the compounds we're actually after in terms of like the fruity um compounds um, aren't really affected whether it's cold or warm um mm -hmm. and so you know going warmer you have a better chance of, of pulling some of those out um and so i think that, that might be a little bit of of the problem in that one um we just recently did a was it a West Coast Pills where we we did dry hop um, uh, warmer than we normally do, but it was a, a very small addition and we didn't um, rouse that at all. We're not trying to over extract, I think, especially at a warmer temperature. I think that's when you risk even more of a chance to get that astringent um, off flavor. Um, so, I, you know, that that would that would be my guess um, for that beer. But. OK, yeah, um, I I'd just say what, what it would surprising that one ounce would do that, but I mean I, right. I don't have a better I don't have a better pitch. <laughs> it's it's also quite interesting because when I brew quite yeast, um, I often also really pitch uh, or um, drop the hops in at the end of fermentation. But you know that's so quickly. I mean that's even more uh, quickly than you know usual fermentation. So I think the hops in, in that beer usually don't stay that long warm. So if you then cold crash immediately within, I don't know, 24, 36, hour, uh, 36 hours, it's it's cold basically. So maybe. Yeah. 
So you would rather recommend to uh, first, you know, getting the beer cold, um, then pressure transfer to a keg where the hops are already in. All right. Okay. I, I'll go try that. Yeah, and that's the the only risk there is just making sure the hops are contained well enough that you can then get the either serve the beer or transfer the beer off of them. I think we've all had those situations where the hops get out of something and they clog up the dip tube and and all those sorts of things. Um, that's that's the big risk there. Yeah, usually with a floating dip tube that works fine. But uh, thank you guys, really yeah, appreciate yeah. it. I think that's your Kentucky Common question as well while you're on here. I don't know where else to squeeze it in. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that was when when we talked about the Kentucky Common because I recently brewed one and it was really nice. I just didn't expect it to be so caramelly, but once you mentioned it, it has like kind of an international amber lager vibe. I was like, well, okay, maybe maybe I was on the right ballpark there. So um, I was asking um, which yeast did you use because I usually go for a lager yeast with cream ale and um, Kentucky Common, but would be interesting to know. Yeah, we we had a, a pitch of uh, Imperial Harvest, which is their version of 3470 going. And we fermented, I believe, around 60 degrees, which honestly, that yeast doesn't really produce anything fruity around 60. It's uh, super clean. And really, if anything, that just helps blow off the sulfur. Um, I think traditionally it is an ale, uh, but it's at our scale, it, it can be tough to justify bringing in another $500 uh, pitch of yeast if you've already got something that's pretty close uh, to what you're looking for, uh, rather than bringing in um, a Kolsch strain or something like that, that might be slightly more authentic or you know, a cream ale blend or something like that from White Labs. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Trevor in the chat said, Mike, he's heard that you've experimented with blending wine and smoked malt centric beers. He wanted to, he wanted you to go through the thought process and results around that. Um, sure. For um, smoked beers, smoked beer is something that I've always enjoyed a little of once in a while. Um, I would do them a couple of times a year at home, uh, but notoriously they are almost impossible to sell. Um, Scott <laughs> just uh, doubled our tap lines. We uh, took over a space that was already a brewery that never actually opened. But we just had eight long lines um, that were split to two different sides of the bar. And now we have 16 lines. Um, and so there's a little bit more opportunity maybe to have a smoked beer on a little more frequently. But sort of in the interim, um, our buddy uh, Dan had come to a, a thing at the brewery uh, and had homebrewed a beer with 100% um, Alderwood smoked malt from Sugar Creek in Indiana, Illinois. One of the I states, Indiana. Uh, and it, Indiana. It was the most obnoxiously terrible smoky beer I've ever had <laughs> in my entire life. It was like licking an ashtray. Um, but it, I got this idea that I could make 15 gallons of that at my old homebrew setup, set, and then um, I could make variants. So I could take that keg of uh, foreign export stout, that keg of Vienna lager, that keg of whatever style and then blend in 1%, 2%, 5%, 10% smoked beer, um, both as a way to create a couple of unique smoked beers, but then also as a way to not have a huge amount of that smoked beer and sort of see what people were interested in. Um, and that worked well enough that uh, right before they closed, apparently uh, Skagit Valley Malting did a Maplewood smoked malt. Uh, they're at a, they were out of uh, Washington State. And uh, I brought that in like 50, just a like 50 pound sack, 
did a 15 gallon batch of Lutra fermented barley wine with it and then blended in with a single barrel of uh, maple syrup infused uh, 14 year rye barrel aged uh, vanilla bean stout. So doing like a essentially was inspired by a liquor store that burned down uh, near my house that was just so that smell of like, you know, boozy liquor, smoke, vanilla from the bourbon, um, all that kind of stuff. And so it's been like a fun way to sort of do that on a on a small scale. Um, as a home brewer, you could certainly like bottle something like that off and, you know, you know, use just that as something, you know, you could open one and blend into whatever you had on tap to see, you know, what level of something you liked. Um, as a home brewer, I do a lot of that. If I had, you know, open a bottle of sour red, I had stout on tap, I'd have some of the stout plain, some of the sour red plain, and then work on, you know, a blend of stout and sour red, um, something like that. As uh, commercial brewers, we can't blend wine into beer, but that's definitely something I did as a home brewer. Um, it's honestly a lot easier and a lot better than having to deal with sourcing wine grapes and um, you know, crushing them or fermenting them and blending them and all that. Um, you can just go to the store, get a you know, $10 bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and dump it into your keg of IPA or Saison or whatever and make something um, super unique and delicious and really sort of uh, dial in that exact ratio that you're looking for with uh, without much trouble. And then meanwhile, you could take a bottle of bourbon or several bottles of bourbon and toss it into a barrel, shake it around for a few days, empty it out and reuse it. And that's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 T, the TTB is, uh, would like the barrels to be as uh, dry as possible. Um, <laughs> but that's that that is sort of the trick and now everyone's doing double barrel age triple barrel age quadruple barrel age as a homebrew if you just want to make fortified beer make fortified beer you can just you know blend in a whole ba a bottle of bourbon and turn your you know 12 percent stout into a 17 percent stout with as much bourbon character as you want um without having to go through the you know sequential transfers and the risk of oxygen pickup and all those sorts of things it's not going to be exactly the same thing as barrel aging for a long time but honestly it's um, I think probably easier than, um, you know, dealing with small barrels and high evaporation rates and all those sorts of things. You definitely get a fresher product that way too. Yeah. And, and that may or may not be a good thing, um, you know, depending on what you're looking for. For sure. It might be a good, good thing to sit on for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking about all the, uh, the, the poor breweries that you have to make their hard seltzer with yeast and a must and <laughs> here I am just making vodka soda with flavoring. So. Uh, but Haven, you had your hand raised, buddy. Yeah. Um, of all the the commercial brewers out there, I feel like you two kind of embody the home brewer spirit a little bit more than everyone else. Uh, I think just your uh your background kind of you know warrants that. Uh, does that take do you take kind of that that experimental approach on on some of your beers, or is it kind of just um a free for all what the staff and yourself want, or are you looking to um, freely experiment and what kind of what's the wackiest beer you've brewed on the commercial scale? Wackiest on the commercial. So, well, we've done a lot of wacky variants. I, I wouldn't say that's commercial scale necessarily. <laughs> um, yeah, our, like our, our holiday party was uh, just recently and uh, Scott blended in uh, red wine must into like a three-year-old keg of sour red to do like a sweet and sour port kind of thing and we did uh, one of our brewers baked vegan sugar cookies to add to a beer for uh, you know a, a santa claus theme and uh, you know this we've definitely done like that sort of wackiness 
You got a, a local a local home brewer of yours, uh, Mike. I don't want to necessarily give him away, but he's in D- DC home brewers, and he's asking about the acorns. Oh, I, he's a club member. If I if I uh, assume which Mike it is, uh, yeah, the, the acorns. Although uh, we can't really take credit, that's a scratch brewing uh, maneuver from Homebrewers Almanac, one of my favorite books. Um, I visited Scratch in Ava, Illinois. Um, now seven or eight years ago and and talked to marika and aaron and they're super great people their book's awesome their beer's awesome um essentially you just take acorns uh hopefully you don't have many weevils as i did um put them in mason jars and they just ferment and they smell you don't add anything you don't add water you don't add yeast um they smell like apricots and old books and bourbon and it's it's wild probably like black Um, garlic or something too it's very like you just, you just leave them open in a mason jar. You don't add anything to them. Cl- closed up, and they they What's produce. Smell? You don't crack them at all. Uh, the whole thing is closed up. Yeah, the acorns are whole. The the jar is closed. It's just um, you you leave them out for a little bit to dry out. If they don't get dr- a little bit dry, they'll get moldy in there. Uh, but you don't want them to be totally dry. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's pretty weird. We add him to a uh, a dark saison that had been I can't remember if it was barrel aged or if it was just um, mixed firm Brett kind of thing. But it's fun. Um, I I did a, a beer with him at home before that. I think it was the same ones I still had been holding on to. We haven't gotten out there to do it again, but it's uh, it's a really fun. Um, I, we we try to do a lot of foraging stuff. I mean, it's it's hard at scale. Uh, we just released a beer with. Um, Wineberries, which are like invasive raspberry, blackberry cousin, Sagarin sumac, which I really like. You'll once you know what it looks like, you'll probably see it all over the place if you live on the, at least on the eastern seaboard. Um, I assume it goes sort of west, although I don't know how far. Uh, and mulberries, which are don't taste like much, but they have an awesome purple color. But we've done that. We I just bought a, a pawpaw beer that Scott and a couple of friends from local restaurants and wineries uh, gathered. Uh, three months ago or so. And um, I can't remember if there's any other sort of stuff. And that that's that's the stuff I really like. Um, sort of weird ingredients and um, u- unique things. Uh, we we have, I have a tendency to use like really high-end ingredients just because for beer, it's like not a big deal as a commercial brewer to drop like a hundred dollars on ingredients for a keg. If you can charge an extra buck a pour, that pays for it. So we've done uh, black truffles and geisha coffee and saffron and um, super, you know, high-end Tonga vanilla beans and and a whole bunch of sort of uh, ritzy ingredients. Uh, so that that stuff's always fun too. We just did a uh, coffee. <clears throat> we added coffee to a um, double IPA that was uh, f- the coffee itself was fermented with um, galaxy hops and then the. Um, after a light roasting from uh, one of our uh, friends was then added to a uh, it was shard blade right so that's yeah. uh, mosaic galaxy um, double IPA um, so kind of a fun uh, fun connection between the the coffee fermentation um, and and the beer so like that that's another kind of somewhat unique kind of weird thing but I think you you asked too just about like our homebrew approach and I think that's I mean, if you if we gave everyone a tour of our uh, whole brewery setup, I think all of you guys would point out that all of our homebrew gear is there, and a lot of it is full of of beer and, and is definitely in use. Um, but I think we learn a lot on those. You know, it's not a risk to take five, ten, fifteen gallons off of a tank and and you know age it with some. Um, you know, if there's a new blend of bacteria or 
um, you know, there's a, a new experimental uh, whatever number hop or, you know, like that always wanted to try the new thing. I think as a home brewers, like as a home brewer, I was always excited about like new, new hops and, and new ingredients, especially now there's always new um, hop products to try like hop keef and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so, um, yeah, we we definitely still have that mindset and, um, and gear. Awesome. Thank you. I was going to say, uh, enough of these, enough of these beer questions, let's get to the hard hitting stuff. Um, so, um, if you were a pizza topping, what pizza topping would you be? And what pizza topping would you want to be paired with? <laughs> Mike's first. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess obviously I have to be like pick, pickled peppers or something like that, right? I mean, like the so what is that the only sour thing that goes on pizza? I'm certainly not going to be pineapple. <laughs> I just, I just cranberries on pizza. I'm sure. Yeah. Cranberry. <laughs> Balsamic vinegar, maybe. There we go. Went to an amazing place back in LA that always did uh, onions and peppers with pickled pepper, uh, pickled onions. Mm. Fantastic. I just recently ordered a uh, smash burger pizza from a place uh, locally. It was about an hour away, and and I eat uh, plant-based vegan, and and I ordered it and drove uh, an hour and a half back and realized it was real cheese. But I'm really excited about that the, the idea of a, a smash burger pizza. <laughs> <laughs> hard hitting questions will hard hitting uh always <laughs> daniel dickinson you had your uh hand up buddy yes yeah, so you're talking about your homebrew equipment do you use that for personal drinking or do you use it for testing of new batches new flavors new recipes yeah, most mostly testing yeah i think we just we put out so many beers ourselves it's hard for us to even stay on top of and 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 try them and think about them i think the idea of having three taps um going at home is 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 daunting at the, at this point um and really it's just always trying new things is 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 more beneficial to our uh beer consumption i think these days but yeah no i'll, I'll echo what scott says i still have a couple carboys in the basement but i it's been more than five years now since i brewed a batch at my house I still, you know, every every once in a while, I'll, I'll get the the homebrew system out at the brewery and having an on-demand hot water heater and a trench drain and hoses and all that. It makes uh, brew days very easy compared to what they used to be. Uh, but still, I think where we brew so many beers and um, Scott and I are essentially like the only voices that matter in the brewery. Like there's no investors, there's no uh, CFO. We can sort of do whatever we want. We're not I've got a couple of friends who are professional brewers and they'll brew something at home to bring it in to like try to sell the owner on the concept of, you know, making a big batch of this or whatever. Um, and Scott and I, if we really want to do something and an idea tickles us, we just do it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and for our staff, there's a lot of wiggle room of, Hey, if you've got time and you want to, you know, um, source those ingredients and make that variant or whatever it is, like we're giving you the freedom to, um, work on that. So like uh, our, our lead brewer, Ken, is really into saisons at the moment. We just peeled off two barrels of the Pilsner and add saison yeast, and then we can split that off with different breath strains or 
whatever he's excited about. Um, if something in that turns into something cool, awesome. And if not, hey, he uh, he's having his voice heard. And um, it's both, you know, do we like it? Does he like it? And does it sell well? Do, you know, do the people come in the tasting room um, order a second pint of it? That kind of thing. Um, you mentioned hot products earlier, Scott, and I'm interested in what both of y'all have to say, but like what kind of hot products out there are, are, are beer, new beer products out there that, that you guys are interested in? I know there's a lot of flowable hot products. I know the filized yeasts are huge things. Like what, what would you say is like kind of the, the frontier on the horizon or the cool hot products you've seen out there that have really like transformed how you make beer or you think have the biggest potential to transform how we make beer on both commercial and even homebrew level? I think my answer will probably be a little underwhelming. I think we've, we've tried so many of these products and, and, you know, I think Salvo is the only one that we use on a, a somewhat regular basis. That's, uh, you know, a hot variety specific uh, pourable uh, extract that you can use without any alpha acids. So you can use them um, in the whirlpool and, and get a lot of hop compounds um, into your fermenter that way without um, worrying about adding too much bitterness. Um, so especially I think in beers, you're trying to really try to wow people or a, a maybe like a pale ale, if you're just trying to push a little more flavor, like that's a, a, a good thing to experiment with. Um, they're just, there's so, it seems like a lot of companies now kind of have their own versions of what other companies have. And, and so that's, um, it, it gets a little confusing on, on what products are actually actually what or, or how to use them because you'll hear you know a lot of times they're uh, something will be intended for the whirlpool but then you'll hear about breweries having success adding them like day one day two of fermentation um and so i you know i i don't know what it has the most potential um necessarily but um you know i we have had a few uh and we're going to get some more um hop Oils is a big thing that you could add uh, post-fermentation, and we've done a lot of experimentation with those. Um, Yakima um, Chief has an experimental product out that, you know, at least the, a couple times we've tried it um, in, in the uh, post-fermentation with a, a dry hop beer, um, really added a nice kind of fruity thing to the beer. A lot of times my issue with hop extract products or hop products in general is they, they smell kind of like a cooked hop like a very green resinous thing and not like an opened up nice T90 hop, if that makes sense. Um, and so it's, you know, getting the right product and figuring out the right way to use it, I think is the key to a lot of those. And um, we're still kind of experimenting and, and trying to dial a lot of that stuff in, I think. I'm, I'm still a big believer in cryo hops. I'm super excited that we can now get cryo New Zealand varieties. We just got our first cryo Nelson Sabin uh, just for dry hopping for us. That's, I don't know that it's double the punch of sort of standard hops, but um, it's we end up losing less beer. There's more uh, more oomph than the other sort of standard hops. They tend to be partly, I think, just because they're ground really fine. Um, and they tend to be really fluffy because they don't compress them um, as much, and they just um, infuse better too. They're like there are some T90 pellets that are like also really like um, fluffy and just like when you rub them, they just sort of fall apart compared to some hops that you get and you rub them and they're just like rubbing pencil erasers together in your hands. Um, and so like the, that quality, like the actual, like how is the hot pellet made? How, you know, what, what kind of drying temperature, what's the oil content, how's it compressed? How, how, how hot did it get during compression? You know, all that stuff is, um, 
important. But yeah, I'm with Scott. And honestly, like a lot of the reason we use Salvo is it's also like relatively reasonably priced. Mm -hmm. um, the folks the, that I've talked to who really seem to swear by Incognito, which I think you can get as a home brewer now, maybe, but that's sort of the um, alpha and varietal um, tend to either be like really big breweries who say, hey, this is increasing my yield by 10% or they're brewers who say, I really wish I could add um, a big amount of hops to the Whirlpool, but my system isn't built with that in mind. I can only add, um, you know, the equivalent of half an ounce in a five gallon batch. Um, the, this is sort of my only option to get hot side hop character into the beer. Um, where we can do, um, and I'll say it's not a huge amount, we do around one ounce per gallon on the hot side, so like a decent charge, but not a crazy amount. Um, or is it even less than that? I forget. Yeah, we do like two I'm excited about Lupamax this last year, since there's more and more varieties that are Lupamax, or I forget the other variety or the other name for it, but just yeah, Lupulin yeah. hops, like big, big Lupulin amounts and hops. Yeah, yeah, those tend to be, I think those are closer to one and a half times concentrated. And that's my knock on them has always just been they're like half as concentrated, 50% is concentrated on the way to being uh, cryo, but they sort of charge you full cryo prices for the most part. It's a T45, um, right? Oh, they're you know, T90s, but I think they're equivalent to T45s because us, us as homebrewers can't get 45s. Oh. Cryo that's is essentially a T45 too. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think Lupo Max is like, a, it's all like a T60 almost. I don't know if they call it that, but like um, when you look at the alpha, it's usually 50% higher than the T90 rather than double. Got it. Ballpark, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, they, they, they have... on this scale and it's a hot, sticky mess, man. Yeah. Yeah, and um, we could talk about thialized yeast a little. I, I wrote an article for Brew Your Own, and it's sort of just an adaptation of what was on my blog. I, I'm i not super wowed by them. Um, when they came out, I was really excited by the sort of um, the promise that it would like take a variety of compounds from the hops and create a variety of compounds in the final beer. So more than just like, oh, it's like Hefeweizen yeast makes banana. It doesn't really matter what you um, do in the word of the hops, it makes that plus banana. And so um, I think there's some truth to thialized yeast doing that, but sort of 3MH is like most of what it makes. And a lot of malt has just enough of the precursors. that You don't even need to add hops. Um, and so you just end up with beer that primarily tastes like passion fruit. Um, and that's something that's like, super cool if you're making a passion fruit beer and you don't want to add you know a huge amount of passion fruit which is super acidic or you um you want to lean into it in some way hey you're using galaxy hops which have a passion fruit thing great get get um star party or uh one of these other strains that are you know ten thousand times as much uh, 3mh and really lean into that my problem is that like as a commercial brewery we tend to buy a pitch of yeast and we'll use it for uh, the, the run we have now is, uh, it's, uh, we have a pitch of English ale in an ESB right now. We'll harvest that, um, tomorrow for the pale ale we're brewing. We'll harvest the pale ale next week for probably an IPA and a double IPA. We might harvest the, the IPA for a triple IPA or something like that. Well, I don't want my ESB tasting like passion fruit. And then I'm going to have to have a pale ale, an IPA, a double IPA, and a triple IPA that all have, have to lean into that flavor or risk, um, like I love Simcoe. I think really great Simcoe tastes like mango popsicles. 
Um, but when you use thiolized yeast, it tends to taste like tropical fruit. Um, it sort of like smooths out the varietal character you get from a great hop. And it makes it punchy and tropical, but sort of the same tropical you'd get with thiolized yeast and citra or thiolized yeast and, and mosaic. Um, and I think maybe in the right blend, we when we use it, we tend to use cosmic punch just because it sort of maybe underlines it a little more without dominating. Um, but I, we're, we're still sort of struggling to, I, we haven't done a run with it probably in six months, I would guess, um, just because it's not something that typically um, makes sense for us to do. Because, hey, I want to harvest that yeast for a stout or I want to do something else with it. And that thiolized thing is, is going to go crazy. I'd love if it was an enzyme. I'd love if it was something I could just use, um, you know, one in three. And then, hey, this yeast, I'd love, you know, this batch, I'd love to turn up the thiols. Here's a scoop of something, um, and a lot of like winemakers. That's sort of there. There are all these winemaking enzymes we've played around with, but sort of a thiolized specific one would be uh, probably really nice. Cool. Brent, you got your hand up, buddy. All right, I, uh, I heard uh, Mike. I think you mentioned Luta earlier. I'm not, are you guys using Kavike uh, strains or anything? What, what strains are you using? What, what styles are you using them in? Or, or if you're not using them, why? What, what, what kind of negatives or reasons are you not using them? Um, that was probably the only the only uh, Kavik strain we've used in five years. Um, our problem early on is we do these split batches, and the couple of times we brought in Kaviks for up. Oh, so we we finish oh, our IPAs finish um, pale ale IPA double IPA in the ten twenty to ten twenty four kind of range. Um, and so we're starting a double IPA in the mid 1080s and we brought in, I can't remember if it was Hornendahl or something like that. And it, that, that sucker dried it out to 006 and it was 10% alcohol and it was awful. Um, and so they were just very difficult strains to work with in that split batch sort of environment. Um, for us, we have enough tank space, enough tank time that shaving a couple of days off of fermentation is not that uh, much of a priority for us. Um, our double IPAs take, let's say, three, three and a half weeks to turn around from brew day to packaging. And so much of that time is the cold crashing, the two-stage dry hopping, the getting the hops back out, adding biofine, getting it carbonated. And so shaving two days off of that for a faster primary fermentation, so I'm at two days instead of four days, um, isn't that valuable. I'm not trying to crank out something that is uh, one week uh, grain to glass where two or three days is like a 50% savings. Um, I, I don't know, Scott, if you have strong feelings on Kavik's or, or not, it's just something we, uh, I used a couple of times as a home brewer and then just uh, haven't had um, the reason to dive back into. Yeah, I kind of always joke that we paid way too much money for uh, fermentation temperature control. <laughs> so, it, um, but I, I kind of, yeah, I agree with Mike. It, it's just, we, we've done it. I've done it a few times as a home brewer. The few we've, we've done at the brewery or um, I'll be, I'll be fair to those beers. They didn't have the greatest um, like wart set up, like Mike was saying, or uh, the temperature control. Uh, we, you know, either they're too cold or we didn't get them up as hot as, as kind of recommended. Um, but in general, I'll say like I, in terms of like hoppy beers, I've always kind of found like the, 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 the yeast 
character it brings to the beer is somewhat harder to pair with with certain hops um but um yeah i don't it's just it, it makes more sense for certain environments i think too um you know a lot of you know it, places that are really hot and they don't have temperature control it's like the perfect yeast um but when you're really trying to dial something in and have more control i, I kind of like um using using the glycol and, and you know putting yeast in that range where we know what's going to happen cool david you got something for me buddy yeah um so just as a follow-up uh, to the quike uh, thing um i've been probably brewed i don't know like 30 or 40 batches with quike uh with different strains and I, I also like here in Germany, there are also loads of homebrewers who have done beers with that, but they are also like, ah, it's not the best thing and pretty, you know, not not very convinced of that. Let's say, let's put it that way. But um, I just can say that if, if I think, you know, like you said, word setup and also temperature, pitch rate, fermentation, um, um, time and whatnot, all these variables they are really going into that and then i think um also the hoppy beers because i did a um what what was that there was a, a new england style pele with uh voss and framgarn so and i think the word was with cashmere so just a single hop beer but that was really awesome and and you could definitely tell these beers apart because the voss was more leaning towards this uh kind of blood orange um aroma and flavor whereas the from garden was more tropical so like mm -hmm. pineapple guava and that paired really really well with the um with the uh cashmere hops but anyway i was i was going to ask you a question about the first beer that you mentioned uh, in the beginning of the meeting i think that was orange orange sorbet that you that you were talking about right so we, we do a couple different ones so we we do our sorbets are just zest and vanilla beans no juice and then we do the juiciest line, which is that plus juice. And then we do some things that just have zest or just have vanilla, but that's, we, we do a variety of, uh, and then we do now parfait, which is coconut, <laughs> vanilla, and uh, zest. Okay. Because I, I really always <laughs> like the idea of like having kind of a dessert beer, but in vegan without lactose. And I was always really interested to, 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 you know, kind of replicate this beer because in Germany, I think we we could have gotten kind of uh, some beers of you, but that was like just once, once in a lifetime. So uh, yeah. and they were so sold out so quickly. But yeah, if you could just give me some hints, you know, like maybe mashing high, lots of dextrin malts and protein malts, and I don't know what's your uh, tips on that. Yeah, we. Um... So honestly, a lot of those beers are just split from our standard pale ales. Um, when I can and when we do want to really lean into them, we do all those things. So we'll we'll cut the um, we our, our calculated bitterness in the kettle is like 50, 60, 70, um, which is higher than most people I think would assume. Uh, but part of that is we're also finishing a higher final gravity. Um, and so we'll back down the bitterness a little bit, but still, honestly, a lot of those are still. 30 or 40 or 50 IBUs, um, we're just finishing it, you know, the mid to high 1020s. Um, mm -hmm. And then right. uh, it really doesn't take many vanilla beans. Um, for a five gallon batch, you know, like two or three vanilla beans, um, 
you can, uh, at a homebrew scale, it's probably easier just to make sure you're splitting them and then chopping them up and getting them in there. Um, same thing with citrus zest, you know, something like one citrus fruit per gallon is the kind of ballpark range. Um, you know, I, the guy who came up with uh, grapefruit sculpin uh, and I worked together at uh, Marin Times back in the day. And um, if I'm a, if I'm doing a small batch, I'll still do it. I'll take a vegetable peeler and take off each slice of zest, flip it over and try to scrape off as much of the white pith as I can. Um, at our scale, it's not quite as good, but if we're zesting 400 whatevers, uh, the only option is it's the rotato. So you stick the fruit on there and it just spins it around and zests sort of a long spiral off of it. Um, and we do all that, you know, for a couple of days, post-fermentation, post-dry hopping. Um, obviously, I mean, as, as a homebrewer, I did a mango vanilla sort of thing along those lines with Voskovic. So, it, you know, those are the kinds of things you could really lean into um, if, you, if you want that passion fruit or you want that Kavik flavor, you want, you know, the thiolized thing. Um, Go heavy on the chloride. Um, we again are like relatively balanced chloride to sulfate. We're like 50-50. Um, we'd probably swing at 75-25, something on that. The trick with all these beers is like, we still need to make something that someone has one of at the at the brewery and says, I want a four pack of this. Um, and so right. making sure there's still some balance there, that the hops are there. Um, personally, if I wasn't splitting a batch, I wouldn't use like super high end hops for something like this. I mean, Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe, great. I wouldn't, you know, use the, the best lot or the, um, the cryo or the, you know, something you only have a little of, um, I'd stay yeah. away from, you know, Nelson, I'd stay away from Rowaka, I'd stay away from like really, um, dank, aggressive and just go with ones that are like nice and bright and citrusy and, you know, Cascade would be great. Um. Good Centennial, we have a problem finding good Centennial these days, but good Centennial or good Amarillo, uh, you know, so, yeah. something that's like stone fruit, citrus, whatever. Uh, but then otherwise, yeah, it's just sort of our same general approach to all of our hoppy beers. And um, what about the mesh temperature? And also I was interested if you guys did ever use oat milk for uh, the vegan beers. I don't know if that's a thing that would work. Uh, maybe adding it in a mesh, I don't know, instead of um, cutting back on the water. Um, we we did macadamia milk with uh, our friends, the suspended brewing in a banana sort of milkshake thing. It was okay, if I remember correctly. It was yeah. a lot of a lot of the protein coagulated and dropped out. We added it um, to, the, to the fermenter um, as late as possible. My assumption is always if you're adding anything to the mash, it's probably converting just like oats would. Um, so we wanted to add it as late as possible. And that it was an okay beer. I, I that one I forget if it ended up like high alcohol or there's something that wasn't great about it. It was but. a little hot. We're we're always worried about how stuff settles out like that too. Those <clears throat> alternative milks once you add them to, to beers and things that can happen with different pHs and um but yeah, we probably should or I should probably look at that a, a little bit more too. Um, the other thing I would add about the like the sorbet series too, we could talk a little bit about hot burn. I think those are definitely ones that you would want to make sure that doesn't have. Um, that's the last thing you want, like a smooth vanilla citrus thing is that, you know, biting burn on the on the finish. Uh, we, we mash them at like 154, 155, something like that. You could certainly go a little higher than that. Talking about mash temperature is always a little weird. Um, I don't really know what our actual mash temperature is. I just know what it is at the top of the mash after we run the rakes for 20 minutes 
before we start the research because that really throws the temperature out of whack. Um, so I don't really know if that's like an accurate temperature. If I was a home brewer, I could stir up my whole mash. Um, it, it, it's, it is what it is, uh, but you know, it's sort of the answer would be more like mash at the temperature will get you the desired final gravity based on your starting gravity and your yeast strain and all those. You know, if you're using a really highly attenuative Kavik, uh, you're probably mashing at 160 or something like that. If you're using like a really, you know, lazy English strain, you might be going even lower than that. Um, but then, yeah, otherwise it's just, you know, sort of standard process, keep the carbonation on the low side. So it stays creamy. Um, we add juice post-fermentation if we're doing that. In those cases, we might finish a little bit drier just cause you're gonna get all those simple sugar from the uh, orange juice or grapefruit juice or whatever it is. And again, might have to worry about your pH and maybe add a little bit of uh, baking soda or something like that if you're using like a really acidic juice. Yeah. I was going to ask about the pH as well. So maybe shooting for a little higher mesh pH. Yeah. Um, honestly, like, like it's the 8.5, for example. I honestly, Around. when you're adding something that acidic, we did a pale ale with passion fruit juice, and the passion fruit was so acidic that the beer was at four or five, and the passion fruit juice took it down to three, three. Um, so again, depending on, on the pH of your, I don't know if they sell it, uh, in Germany here, they, they actually, there's an orange juice they sell for people with sensitive stomachs where they've neutralized the acidity. That's the kind of thing I might consider using. Um, you know, I assume they're adding chalk or something like that. Um, for the passion fruit beer, we end up adding uh, potassium carbonate to raise the pH and we got the pH up to the mid to low fours. But it still was weird. Despite that, it still tasted sort of tart. The the sort of sharpness of the city was gone, but you could still tell it was tangy or something going on. Um, that's something we try to avoid doing. But like um, when we've dealt with phantasm powder, that's something we'll play around with because phantasm is derived from white wine grapes. It'll lower the pH. We'll add a little bit of baking soda along with it just so our pH doesn't start at 3.9 or something like that. But that's it's a lot of those things are uh, again uh, probably exacerbated at our scale. <laughs> Guys, we, we've had John here for around an hour, and I want to honor your time, so we really do appreciate you. Do you have enough time to hang around for a few more questions? We got a few more hand raised. Are y'all in a hurry? Don't have significant others to go respond to or anything? Or yeah, I can now, Scott, Scott's going to get into uh, mashing our next batch in what an hour, Scott? Yeah, right. <laughs> Luckily not. <laughs> no, we're good to go. <laughs> uh cool um will you got a question buddy other will yeah i uh um getting back to the uh the bioengineered yeast uh i don't know if you guys have had a chance to uh try the new dko line from omega the the one that's supposed to eliminate diacetyl i was just curious if you i know just got available to home brewers but i didn't know how long pro brewers had access to it and if you had any thoughts on it we yeah we haven't haven't used that um, yet. I think uh, I think we used to. I, I swear Ber Berkeley sent us one that was a diacetyl something or other. Oh, that was a Conan strain. Yeah. I mean, we just tough. honestly we don't have, have diacetyl problems. <laughs> right. I was just gonna say that it's not like something we've had a problem with, and so it's not something we've really had to um, seek out. Um, uh, what did we just use? We, we just, the collab we did with, uh, so we yeah. did a Highland Park collab for the West Coast Pills and Bob from Highland Park uh, is a big advocate for uh, a a ALDC. 
which is yeah. that enzyme that you can just add. Um, and it, it is, a, if it was something like, uh, and so again, partly for him, it's that he's dry hopping warm and he was advocating we dry hop warm. Uh, and since we don't dry hop warm, we tend to not get the hop creep and not get the restart to fermentation and all that. Um, but we just add the enzyme too. We have a, a Chuck Pilsner going with the Urkel strain with RO water and uh, floor malted bohemian malt and saws. And um, that's that strain can put out a lot of diacetyl. And so we had around and we said, hey, let's chuck it in and just, you know, it's a little insurance. Um, we sort of had the same opinion too on the like the haze positive or haze neutral. Like our hazy beers are already always pretty hazy. And so that's never been um, a big thing for us. When we're hiring and we interview people for bigger breweries, almost every single one of them talks about adding some sort of um, uh, haze stability additive to their beers. Um, just, you know, these breweries, they're trying to make hazy beers that sit on the shelf for six months um, and are also, because of the economics of it and the flavor profile, can't dry hop at three or four pounds per gallon and can't maybe use the high level of oats and wheat um, that we are. And so, like, there, there are certainly... Um, targeted customers for the, some of those bioengineered strains, but we tend to not be those people because if we want our lager to be clear, we can wait longer and, and we add Clarex to them and that seems to be good enough. And we don't need a, a strain that is never hazy because then we couldn't use it in a hazy beer. I'd say if anything in hoppy beers, we have a hard time not having them hazy, even when we intend to do like a clear West Coast style. So um, I think one thing I'm I'm interested in trying is the like a where they a bioengineered strain where they're uh, removing the haze gene to see if what that does actually going the other way trying to make a clear beer with a you know a strain that has still that body and um, whatever to it but um, just like Mike said a lot I think um, there's a lot of things we do as brewers throughout the entire process that is just kind of an insurance move. Um, to just ensure that that product and that that beer that we're spending so much time and effort on is going to be as best as it can. And so that's where I kind of would see a, a strain like that being used. It's just, you know, if it's not really going to change the the ester profile of that strain or anything like that, but you're guaranteed not to get diacetyl, then yeah, I, I, I can see the logic. Since Will didn't ask a silly question, I feel like I need to ask a sillier question. So I want to know y'all's desert island beers. We always say the same one. <laughs> I I always say Dreefontein and Goose. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I I think it's great to have any beer that you can drink warm and think about and um, draw complexity out of, or you can drink cold while you're watching football as just like a tart, refreshing, not super sour. Um, it's, it's honestly like it's something I, I come back to with like when we're doing sour beers, like there just has to be like a deliciousness to beers. Um, that That's, I think, a big reason that like mixed firm beers have sort of fallen off is that a lot of them are like hard to drink or like, wow, I really need to share this with three or four people because it's so sour. Um, and I, I think uh, a lot of American brewers, including us probably, lost sight of like, you should make beers that people want to drink. And when they finish drinking it, they should say, I want to have another one of those and not, wow, that was so special. Uh, anyone else want the rest of this bottle before we open something else? Okay, let's, you know, let's move on. And I'm not going to open that bottle that's in the basement for six years until it's gross just because I don't really need it anymore. Um, I think that's sort of what the, a lot of those um, 
European brewers sort of got was that like a beer has to be delicious. It can also be interesting and complex, but it needs to be delicious and drinkable first. Yeah, there's just a lot to appreciate in that beer. I mean, it's 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 dry. You can you can keep sipping it. Um, it's got a tremendous amount of uh, aroma and and flavor without adjuncts. Um, you know, I think a lot of times it's we our mind or at least mine when we're tasting barrels is like, what fruit could go with this? Or um, it, it's it's you it's easy to forget about some of the most beautiful beers are ones that are just the barrel, just the beer, just the microbes blended together. Um, and so it just, it's, it's, it's one of those perfect beers, I think. So, uh, Vinny Chalurzo's answer was, um, uh, Orval because it would just never taste the same way twice. Throughout, <laughs> you, know, you keep drinking the same beer for two years and it would never taste the same. So, yeah, no, honestly, any, anything mixed firm. What you got, Haven? Well, actually, that's an awesome segue because I was going to bring up mixed fermentation sours. I do a lot in my basement. I love it. Uh, it's such a fun little side project within the hobby. Uh, do you guys kind of talk about your process a little bit? And what do you go into making a batch of, say, like a, a blonde ale that you're going to to add a bunch of microbes to with an end product in mind, such as a, a type of barrel or an, an adjunct that you're going to add at the end, or are you kind of letting it ride, tasting it 12 months down the road and, and trying to, at that point, figure out what you can add to it or what you can do with that batch? Um, so we honestly, it's sort of the same answer for both like our barrel step program and our mixed firm program. We're just putting a lot of stuff into a lot of different barrels and seeing what comes out. Um, I will say that sort of like, so we have a, a club and, we come up with beers that like are planned to be club releases. And so they'll be like, hey, um, we're putting out a sour red next year that's gonna be dry hopped. And I don't know which of the 10 barrels of sour red that are currently aging will be part of that. And, and it may or may not say what hop varieties are in there, but like there are things that we're looking, looking towards. I think you have to have some of that um, when you have like we do 60 or 70 barrels or otherwise, it's just overwhelming. You kind of, you know, there can always be um, additional offshoots along the way. Hey, this barrel didn't fit in that blend. It really tastes like mangoes. Let's lean into that. Or, hey, um, you know, we're going to just do like a, a mixed firm, non-barrel non forward blend in September. Let's be, you know, as we are tasting barrels through the year, start, you know, thinking about which barrels might be good candidates for it and not use them up on the, um, the double barrel dry hop, whatever, you know, crazy project. Let's save that for, you know, the, um, the, the most important one. Uh, but we have like all sorts of different, like basically every barrel is different microbes. Um, we do a lot of repitching. So like we have a barrel, a batch of golden strong going right now, a couple of days after uh, brew day, we brought one of the barrels over that we really liked. It was about six months old pumped 10 barrels, 10 gallons into the to the tank and then refilled the barrel. So sort of getting something that's a repitch of a repitch of a repitch that we really like. Um, but then in the same breath, some of those barrels that we're now filling off that tank are getting single breath strains from yeast vet. Um, and so we're always kind of like playing around, experimenting. Um, I really love doing collabs where people just come in and help us blend. Um, there's not a lot of fun when you do like a mixed firm collab of just being like, oh, do you want to do like 8% wheat or 10% wheat or try, try oats? <laughs> or um, It's a lot more fun to have. Um, we just had um, 
Jennings from uh, Pendrood, which is down in Virginia. They wood-fired kettle and cool ship and all that. It was just awesome having somebody who um, has been doing this for a while taste a bunch of our barrels and see what he got excited about, what flavors he thought would go well together with uh, Barbara red wine grapes and local sour cherries. And um, sort of work, work on that as just like a more collaborative, cohesive, fun thing rather than just, hey, here's some stuff. Um, for like weird barrels, we, we do some double barrel aging. So um, we just got some PX Sherry barrels from Spain. We tasted through a whole bunch of barrels and we found two that were sort of a good pair. We jumped those into those barrels and now, hey, they're already a year plus old. We can leave them in the barrels for two months or six months or a year, depending on what flavor we like. And so um, we're not risking, say, overdoing the sherry. If we were putting fresh beer in there that might be aging for two years, it might be overwhelming and obnoxious in two years. Um, so in the same way that you could, you know, when we add cocoa nibs, we go onto them and we taste after day, after two days, after three days. It's a little bit longer, but it sort of gives us that um, that space to um, pull them when they're ready and, and not have to worry about, are they done? Or is the is the fermentation finished? And not risk these barrels that were, I can't remember, 700, 800 bucks a pop on like, maybe it will be good, maybe it won't. Who knows how these microbes will be? Um, mm -hmm. And so we'll, we'll say, I have no idea if like the sherry or no. Yeah, PX sherry. I assume they have sherry floor in them. Uh, I don't know if we'll get that. I know that's something that Wyeese has the Rosalaire, but um, that sort of stuff is fun and interesting and unique. And and we'll see. That that answer the question? Yeah. Yes, you bet. Do you do any sort of like solaring, or are you retiring these barrels after one or two turns? Uh, we still have. I I have a big spreadsheet of all of them. All. I can I can see what the the high number is. Uh, we've used some of them five or six times, I think. Um, oh wow. Yeah, we still have some of our original um, barrels in use. Um, I, I would just say quick to, on, on your other uh, question, you know, a lot of times there, if we have like a, um, you know, a dark lager or, you know, a different clean beer that we just maybe have a little bit more than we need. And it's like, oh, we just happen to be blending a couple barrels and, you know, we, it's a chance to fill, fill one of those. Um, off of a clean tank just to kind of see where it goes. We don't always know exactly where that that potential barrel might end up. Um, mm -hmm. One of our, or at least it, I, I've really liked some of our beers where we we talked a little bit about Cosmic Punch. We've had some good luck putting um, uh, pale ale in beer uh, barrels uh, with microbes and then dry hopping those again after um, some time in the barrel. Um, so that's kind of one that we didn't have a, clear picture where that that was going to end up but ended up being something we we do a couple times now um so those are some of the my favorites now are the uh, the dry hopped um after being in barrels for a while i think i had the pleasure of trying was measure twice one of those yeah yep i i still have the bottle the empty bottle on my display i had a uh, mike sharps i don't know if he's here tonight he sent me some some of the mix firm stuff that you guys do and then brent actually sent me some of the some of the other the more clean side of stuff so i got to try plenty of your beers and that was that one was special it was something different i i've never tasted anything like that measure twice that was good yeah it's it's honestly an idea that i was really resistant to i'd i'd had a lot of um 
that sort of concept from some very good breweries. They've done like you know barrel aged IPAs and things like that that just tasted like shitty old IPAs. <laughs> um, and I was like, I, I was kind of like Scott was pushing for it and Ken was pushing for it. I was just like, you know, essentially, hey, it's kind of free. Um, but the first one, we were really careful. We didn't even rinse out the barrels. We left, you know, five five gallons of slurry in there. We um, were super aggressive, purging everything out with uh, CO2. Um, and it was like really good. And we've done a couple more times and they've all been really good. And so I don't know how much of the bad examples I've even like when we package them, um, we have a counter pressure bottle filler that purges each ball for 10 seconds and we're par carbing them and repitching uh, rehydrated wine yeast with go firm. And, and so like we're going as far as we can to protect the beer. Uh, but honestly, it's surprising that even warm stored in the bottle for six months, that Brett keeps working and um, really protects the hop compounds and changes them. Um, and yeah, no, like me Measure Twice has been great. Um, it wasn't exactly that concept, but uh, Neologism, we did a, a mosaic dry hopped uh, Nelson beer that won uh, Craft Beer and Brewings. I got named the top 20 beers of 2022. And um, it's honestly like just like for us as a brand where we do hops and sour and there's two of us like doing hoppy sour beers is like a like a nice thing that we can talk about both sides of our program and not that many places that focus on mixed firm have the sort of um, maniacal outlook on oxygen that we do coming from making hazy IPAs and not a lot of places that do hazy IPAs also sort of have the um, time and the resources and the the risk taking to you know have a big sour program I mean, there are a handful of them out there but um, you know it's a, a rare combination yeah I should I should point out where we say pale ale but we're these are going into barrel before being dry hopped so it's not like they're being heavily dry hopped and then sitting in a barrel for you know six to eight months just point put that out there before someone tries it and is not happy in a year yeah, you, but then dry dry hopping afterwards, or we we do it right in the the bottling tank. But um, you know, it'd be something you could probably do in a keg and then transfer off of it and bottle, or um, yep. just treat treat it like a uh, you know if you serve it on draft at that point, just like you would a hazy IPA and you know, leave the hops in there and floating dip tube. And but what, honestly, I I still don't know the science, but they they definitely get funkier and breadier than um, our other beers. I don't know if that's the higher um, whirlpool hopping rate, like inhibiting lactobacillus, which is giving the Brett more room to thrive, or whether it's compounds from the hops that are uh, being freed, glycosides and whatever, or if it's something else entirely, but they, they really are um, unique. I, um, I was in Scotland for my 10th wedding anniversary last spring and went to Apocryphal Ales uh, outside of, I think he's outside of, um, Oh, is he outside of Edinburgh or he's in, mm, he's one of, one of the major cities, um, Gareth, uh, super great guy. And basically all his stuff was like um, a lot of hops in the, in the barrels and a lot of um, weird like English or German English kind of stuff. And so um, that was uh, super fun. And I'm ho hopeful we'll get him over to the brewery at some point for a collab. Wow. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'm even thinking Orval and how they they hop the crap out of their beers, man. Even for Brett bottle conditioning, so that's pretty. Seems seems like hops and Brett just like each other. Yeah. Speaking of Brent, what you got, man? All right, I'm gonna take a, a step back from that. I know you're I know you're passionate about those Nick Sours, um, and uh, I, I think we saw there was a post post on somebody shared that I think it was the Alchemist John Kimish. 
talking about. There was no bullshit kettle sours on my menu. So I, I know when you guys started, I think you were doing kettle sours more. Are you, uh, so I, I guess I'm curious, are you, uh, do you feel like do kettle sours fit into your, your program or what about any of the uh, sort of souring yeast, the Philly sours or Vistier, any other, any other strains you have access to? Yeah, we do. We use, we don't do, we, early on, we did a few kettle sours, but we, sour Vistier is kind of where we're at now. It's just so much, it's so much easier. Um, it gets you, gets us down to the pH uh, or close. It, you can't control it as much. I, I think that's the one benefit a little bit with a, a kettle sour is you can kind of call it quits when you get to where you want. Whereas when you're just pitching sour Vissier with, you know, we tend to blend it with uh, USO5 just to, so it's not too, too sour. Um, um, but Scott's, it's, blo Scott's blocking out that he, uh, I think our first kettle sour I think he started bringing it to a boil at about 9 p.m. on like day two because it was at, you know, 3.4, 3.3. And I think got to a boil and you were done by about, you know, 4 a.m. or something like that. So that's yeah, like so the sort of thing you don't have to do. <laughs> yeah, Sour Vissier works fine. Um, but it's just like the, I guess kind of what I, it seems like you're asking a little bit is just like the romanticism about these beers or not if it's like a cheap way to make a sour and I I think there are just so many of these beers now a lot of people think sour that's all they know um that that is the kind of sour they think of it's like the hev heavily fruited um quick uh quick turn sours and um we do you know we do we have a tank that for the most part is pretty much devoted to just having a base sour beer like that, that we can pull off and, you know, do 20 barrels of, and then, you know, mix, uh, blend it in with a, you know, 20, 30% fruit, uh, pick your fruit. Um, and then that one, that base beer in the tank, it just keeps staying in there and we can kind of do, get a couple different beers out of it. Um, but they're, 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 as I do a lot of our festival uh, pouring uh, in the summer, we have like a beer trailer we take around and those heavily fruited uh, sour beers are the ones that the people that don't really like beer go crazy for. Um, and so there's definitely a, a, a place for them, I think on our menu anyways. And, and we, again, you, you're in some ways you're, you're trying to make beers that um, attract a big variety of, of people to your brewery and and that's definitely a style that um is is a pleaser i have to say i do make some fr heavily fruited sours to appease my wife but yeah that's the same thing <laughs> and honestly are you saying are you saying like you know horse blanket and diaper doesn't not <laughs> track big lines of people at the, at the no, I, I, uh, ice cream powder and, uh, fruit is a little better, is a little easier sell, but, um, I don't know about if, if Mike would agree, but I don't think they've been necessarily like easy beers to, to brew and nail either. I think it, they're pretty hard to, to pull off and pull off good. And they, they take a lot of effort. Um, you know, we're, it's, it's a lot of effort to add all these fruits, uh, blend them into the beer, making sure they stay evenly distributed in the tank. Um, making sure they're safe to package. You got multiple transfers going on, um, so they're 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 not easy to to pull off. I, I wouldn't say. Yeah, no, it's it's like anything. There's just every style I think has a different set of 
complexities. I really don't think that there are easier and harder beers to do really, really, really well. Um, you know, as, as difficult as the fermentation is on an American light lager, there are a lot of easy things about American light lager compared to selecting the best, best hops for a double IPA, but the great hops in the double IPA are covering up the fermentation. You know, all that stuff, I, I don't think there's a hierarchy in uh, what beers prove you're the best brewer or something like that. I think for the most part, it's every style um, is as easy or complex as you want it to be. And if you have a really specific idea, they're all just as hard as one another. Um, you know, you have to get every ingredient right. Um, just one one short question. If you're, if you're doing a fruited sour, um, do you put the already carbonated beer into the bright tank and then transfer the fruit, fruit puree from a keg or a bring into the into the bright tank? Or is the beer uncarbonated? You let the beer, uh, you know, like um, ferment out on the fruit and then carbonate, spund it and uh, package it? Or what's your process? Um, it, it depends on the beer, but for the most part, um, we put the fruit in first and then push the beer in on top of it. Um, and that in cases where, like Scott mentioned, ice cream powder, like we're putting the fruit into the tank just through the open door and then using a giant industrial outboard motor looking stick blender to blend the ice cream in. And then um, we've found out we we're having troubles with the beer uh, over carboning. And I know what you're thinking. It's probably because the yeast was fermenting. No, it was because we were recirculating the beer with a pump and it was splashing. And that's doing the same thing as shaking a keg. So we had you know, 15 PSI of head pressure on canning day, recircuit to get it spun up, and that was splashing the beer. Head pressure was dropping um, and we were overcarbonating the beer. And these beers, if they have more than like 2.1 volumes of CO2, uh, when you open them, it's, um, it's like opening, uh, uh, I don't know, can of whipped cream or something like that. It just comes foaming out. Um, Generally, the beer is pre-carbonated and we're adding a little bit more CO2 maybe um, just once we get in there, just because the puree is dead flat. But um, if, if whenever we can, we try to, um, if, if it's like a hoppy beer, so if we're doing like the juiciest ones, that would be more likely to be um, some way where we could do it under pressure a little bit. So either running CO2 and pouring it in the top, or um, if it's enough, you can just get drums and we have a little, um, uh, for more beer, um, diaphragm pump that we can pump the, the fruit into the thing. And that's just all easier to do without a whole bunch of back pressure. So that's easier to get into the tank and then you can push the beer in on top of it. So how about Thanks, a question guys. about, um, using, um, kind of the method similar to blue out if y'all have done anything like that, which I think blue Owl actually takes the, um, but whatever, you know, culture they get off of the malt that they have on hand. And I think they, they do one with just a, a handful or a, a, a little bit of malt and they take that culture and they kind of recultivate it over time. And so he was wondering if y'all done any of those kind of uh, mixed culture kind of experiments. As a, as a home brewer, I did. Um, and it, it was not, for me, it, it wasn't like reliable. The pH got to, I can't remember if the pH stopped high or went low or it just um, wasn't as uh, repeatable a thing. Um, someone I just saw pop up uh, said good belly. That's when we were doing kettle sours, I was big on buying um, lacto grows crazy fast. And so just getting whether it's a, a tube of lacto from or a pack from Omega or a good belly or whatever, you know, getting something, growing it up to a couple of gallons and then pitching that. And then we would usually get down to pH within 
36 hours or whatever. Um, the, the wild thing is just, there's a risk to it that you're gonna get something that's gonna make weird flavors or off flavors. Um, and usually with these, uh, um, Scott mentioned we're, we're doing um, uh, Sour Vissier now. We did Philly Sour for a while and it would just make, just sort of like a, like a cinnamon apple. sort of apple cinnamon kind of thing that we just didn't love. And it was, um, the fermentations weren't reliable. It would start slowing down and we'd add the fruit to get it started again. And it, it was just um, not, not as uh, user-friendly as Sour Vissier has been. Yeah, if I recall, Jeff at Blue Owl, he even, like once they get kind of a culture that they like, they'll keep propping that same culture up for as long as they can, as long as the lab will allow, basically, yeah. to do so. All right, Trevor, yeah, what you got, buddy? I was going to ask my question anyway. Um, I want to echo the, the, the fact that um, Philly Sour, when I've used it, my wife always says the beer tastes like Dynatap, which I always have to ask because like Dynatap's a cough syrup. Right. Yeah. Her childhood that she remembers. I've never had it. So I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, can you describe this to me? She's like, I don't know. It's like some fruited medicinal flavor. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's stay away from that. That doesn't sound good at all. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. That doesn't mean it's bad. I'm like, all right, great. <laughs> now you're just trying to make me feel better. But anyway, that out of, out of the way, uh, I was going to ask um, if I remember now. Um, when you're adding fruit uh, or other, I suppose, post-dry hop adjuncts like coconut fruit. I'm guessing you're you're doing purely purees for the the easeability of getting that into a solution. What are you doing for things that mm, aren't such flowable, um, like coconut or cocoa nibs? What are you doing for that addition? We actually have a a tank that we have kind of named the infusion tank now at our our brewery, which is um, essentially it's a tank that has a the center of the entire uh, length of the tank is just a big uh, stainless mesh screen um, that we can come out the bottom right through that screen. So if we're doing something like coconut, we can just load all the coconut in loose into that tank. Um, same with nuts um, or you know whatever we're using and just go in loose and then purge that tank and then we can just um, go in like that. Um, and so it's kind of like dry hopping. I, I feel like it's nice when you can dry hop loose, not in a bag, really tight, contained. Um, so that tank allows us to to do that. Um, if we're doing like nuts or something, we found you just really have to have them toasted or you don't get a lot um, from them. Um, but once once they're in that infusion tank, um, we'll typically do like a burp to uh, CO2 through the bottom and just try to agitate it as much as possible and, and, and rouse, rouse it up. But um, yeah, just loose through that tank is has worked pretty well. Um, we've also we can put like a, like an inch and a half um, screen in, in one of our uh, yeast brinks um, just through the bottom port, um, and that's another way to just throw in adjuncts like that loose um, and then come out. Doug, did you have a question? I thought you put one up in the chat. I didn't know if you wanted to say it out loud. Sure. Um, you know, when you're dealing with mixed fermentations like this, I imagine that there have been times where you have one, two, maybe more years invested into a barrel and it just doesn't taste right. So I'm curious what strategies you employ when that happens. I mean, do you put more time into it, put more bread into it? Uh, at some point, do you pull, pull the, you know, pull the trigger and dump it? And then the other is, you know, what, what ratio of uh, successes versus failures 
would you say you have on on average? Um, yeah, we I I just dumped a whole bunch of barrels maybe six months ago. That um, so we we just have a big spreadsheet with notes in it. Um, I wish I could say we were better at uh, tasting the barrels as frequently as they should be, but it's it's easy to push off the sour beers uh, until some you know until you really have a lot of time. And and the more we grow and the more we do, the less days I have where I'm just like, oh, there's nothing going on today. I, I'll go over there and taste some barrels. Um, I it would be a good idea to taste barrels, I think around six months, um, just as they should be doing something by six months. Um, you know, if the beer still just tastes like um, young, or at that point, you know, getting older beer um, without any funk or any acid, it's probably time to add something else. We did some experiments that had um, wild capture stuff, and most of them just didn't taste great, sort of had dilly flavors, taste like hot dogs. Um, and we let them go, I think a little more than a year, maybe 15 months. And then I started buying yeast blends and tossing them in. Um, so things like that. Um, you just also, over time, you learn that there are flavors you're not coming back from. If you've got nail polish, if you've got vinegar, if you've got, you know, it just tastes oxidized or old or no amount of time or microbes is going to sort of um, reverse those things. Um, we have, and this is sort of, it's, it can be tough. Um, we'll get to a point where, you know, the a barrel is two and a half or three years old and it doesn't taste great, but it also doesn't taste terrible. And it really then becomes sort of a, um, the three or four of us are going to taste the barrel. And if you say, no, I'm not, we, we shouldn't dump this, then it's kind of your responsibility that, you know, You've got to, you know, have a, a pitch of what are we going to do with this barrel? Um, hey, you know, even if it's, hey, let's keg it off and this would be good blending stock at a low level for other beers. Or, um, hey, you know, this tastes pretty weird, but like, I'm, I'm really into it. I think we should just, you know, package it as is. Or, hey, this fruit or this dry hop would help to sort of balance that out. Um, sort of as general rules, if a beer is too, a little too sour, like a dry hop will raise the pH and help balance that. If beer is not sour enough, adding a, a fruit will spark re-fermentation, get the, the pH down and add more interesting aromatics and things like that. Um, but I'll also say, I, I've heard some brewers say like, oh, you know, I use my best beer for fruited beers. And I think that's just not the way the world works. Um, if you've got really great beer, you shouldn't be adding anything to it. Um, but that's like fruit is a valuable part of the program because it allows you to take beer that's like fine or like a little bit exaggerated one way or another and pair it with something. Um, this beer is super rubbery. Hey, that that's going to come through even with a lot of peaches uh, and be really fun um, in a way I wouldn't want it in, in a beer without uh, a, sort of an adjunct. Um, it's so hard to say percentage wise. It seems pretty good though. Like if you th yeah, think about all the refills in, in these barrels and the amount that we've dumped, it, it the, the successes seem high, but every time you dump a barrel, it hurts so much that it's, it lingers in your mind a little more. There's, there's also, there's still just like a bunch of barrels that like probably should be dumped that have been marked for dumping six months ago and just haven't been dumped. Yeah. And so like, that's always the hard thing is that like, um, you know, you're keeping your losses off the books a little bit, but yeah, no, de definitely with, um, I can't imagine more than 10% of the beer goes down the drain, something like that, 10 to 15 at most, I would say. Um, 
And on the stouts, it's probably even lower than that, maybe 5%, something like that. Um, but with all these things, it's, it's um, partly for us, it's that uh, it took a while to get enough older barrels. When we started out, all our beers were in like first use barrels and were too oaky for a while. And we just had some misses on microbes. And I've been a lot happier with the character of the beers once we went to um, both refilling barrels, but also um, repitching from things that we had rather than buying uh, new microbes every time to start from scratch. I think it also helps that we don't have sort of like a core beer, you know, that we're not trying to make one beer that tastes exactly the same all the time. And so there's a lot more opportunity for blending and, and creating something new that doesn't taste the same rather than having to worry about, does this fit that brand's, um, you know, specs or whatever. Yeah, it's more of a, is this good or not mindset. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have any blended beers that you typically try to get to the same flavor profile for every time you go to bottle it? No, I mean, like, not even, like, they're definitely, we have sort of, um, there are no edges is like our Vinda Cereal, so like a 12% or 10% um, Flanders Red slash Ode Brune kind of thing. It's like, again, it's like always in the same sort of ballpark, but the first year was port barrels. The second year was Malbec and Pinot Noir, and we just filled some Madeira barrels with it. So it's like a similar base. Um, but honestly, like even like the second one was kind of different because they were at a special B. And so I had to get Wireman spe or special somebody special X or something like that. And it's a lot darker apparently. And, um, and even like uh, uh, growth rings is sort of our like, Definitely doesn't taste like a goose, but sort of the goose-inspired three-year blend. Uh, but like this most recent blend, 25% of the blend started as our Citra Whirlpool Rings of Light because it brought this amazing, bright, fresh citrus note to it. Um, that definitely wasn't in the first one, and I I really like the second batch a lot better. Uh, and uh, as much as untapped re reviews are worth it, the untapped reviews seem to be slightly higher. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive comments from people who I trust. Um, and I think if we tried to hold ourselves to trying to recreate the first batch, we would end up not being as happy with it. Um, I think that's the kind of thing you can do if you're a place like Cantillon that brews the same wort pretty much for 99% of their beers. And so they just have hundreds of barrels of the same stuff. Uh, we're often dealing with like, okay, there's, you know, four barrels of, of this Vinda Cereal blend and we'd like to do, or maybe we have five. Hopefully two get to be plain and work together, two go under fruit together, and there's one that can be saved for a future batch or gets dumped or whatever it is. It's um there we can't do um 47% this and 53% that. It really doesn't make sense to do anything other than 50-50 or something like that. So I'm curious, uh I'll ask this to you, Mike, first. Like what what's your favorite like? sour brewery in the U.S. and then Scott also what's your favorite kind of like IPA centric brewery in the U.S. and y'all can answer the same same question for both. I mean it's it's tough there there are so many great sour breweries um I mean like I've I've been super impressed by the stuff I've had from Floodlands recently and again like I don't get out much and so I'm lucky to have a couple of friends that uh get that stuff and there's this little brewery it's one of the guys i think he used to be the head brewer at um holy mountain 
And he, I think, really does a great job of that, like that subtlety thing. He uses fruit, but it doesn't overwhelm the microbe character. None of his beers are super duper acidic. They're all really drinkable. They're dry. Um, he works with local wine producers and local stone fruit producers. And um, a lot of the stuff is, is like very delicate and drinkable. Um, I'm also just a big fan of like everything that like both Suarez and Fox Farm do. Uh, Suarez in New York, Fox Farm in Connecticut. Um, really good, just sort of like, again, like very drinkable, very bright, very, um, you know, unique, but not like obnoxious um, sour beers. For, for hoppy beers, I, I was just trying to think of like, all right, what, we're lucky that a lot of beers just kind of show up at the brewery. Um, we have a fridge just full of beers where I don't think Mike and I, or I know who brought them or how they got there, but they're incredibly, I mean, they're great beers from all over the country that people bring in. And I was just trying to think of like hoppy wise, which are the ones I'm always, if someone's going to open them, I want to go over and have a taste of. And I, to me, it, it's still Treehouse. I think um, there's, there's, I mean, the quality is always good, but there's still, I, I appreciate that there's still an unknown about their beers um, that is kind of fun. Um, there's a lot, like we just did the bootleg, uh, like, uh, what do they call it? Treehouse? Uh, secret, secret Clubhouse. Secret Clubhouse, I'm sorry. They couldn't say Treehouse, I bet. <laughs> um, but like, it, 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 it was good. It definitely was a unique beer. The, the base beer, we had everyone smell it at the brewery and they all kind of said a different, fruit or a different aspect that you might uh, say was like a treehouse beer, but it didn't quite have that um, exact profile. Um, so the, the, this combination of like using um, yeast and the ester profiles that they bring with um, the hops, and of course, you know, they're using, sometimes they do tremendous amounts of, of hops in certain beers or, um, but there's, I, you know, I, I still appreciate uh, what they're doing. And just early on in my, um, drinking hoppy beers, you know, that was a brewery that I went to when it was just like their, the, the first time I went, it was like his mom and dad, like on serving the, you know, selling the beers on the table. So I just have a different kind of, um, I, I don't, I see them for this huge brewery now, but I still appreciate kind of where, where they were and um, where they came from. But so that's, I think that's um, a hop, hoppy beer that if someone opens on the table, I'm going to go uh, steal a, steal a small pour of. Sounds like nostalgia plays a role in that too, which is awesome. I think I think that plays a key role in all the food that we eat and the things that we drink is having that kind of nostalgic component that you can just kind of like trigger those memories, which is awesome. Right. That's true. David, what you got, man? And and we're we're coming up hour and forty five. So I, again, if y'all are if y'all are petering out or need to head out, don't feel like you're obligated to stay all night, man. But David, what you got? Yeah, we're also probably gonna call it a day soon because it's getting. <laughs> oh my. Hey. This is my girlfriend actually. <laughs> She's also <laughs> listening to you guys. Um, it's getting almost 4 a.m. So we're probably <laughs> calling it a day pretty soon. But it's it's been fun and it's always nice uh, chatting with y'all. Um, so because you, Mike, I think you mentioned earlier that you don't you would like to brew more uh, smoked beers, but they don't sell as well. Um, probably you have already thought about it, but but it would be interesting to know what you think about the style of Lichtenhainer, you know, like the smoky sour beer. Um, 
there are some breweries in Germany that are doing them and um, they mainly export to the US. Exactly. So we sell uh, at our shop, we sell Lichtenhainer, which is produced in Germany, but only labeled in English because it gets exported and not sold in Germany at right. all. Because no German knows about it. Um, and I always sell it because I tell people Gose and Lichtenhainer is the most popular German beer style outside of Germany, <laughs> which no German knows about. Um, so yeah, you have the smoky aspect and the sour one. Well, I was actually I just, I was just talking to, uh, uh, we went to a wife's uh, friend's house. Uh, they have redone their entire basement uh, as a tiki bar and they have uh, menus for the drinks that they make. And they have, they had a holiday theme and, all this uh, and um, the the wife was telling me that uh, we we had a couple of cocktails with uh, mezcal, uh, smoked smoky tequila relative, um, and I was saying, oh, you know, we just got some tequila barrels for an IPA and like mezcal is so smoky. I don't know if anyone would like it. You know, I guess we could do it in like a stout or something like that. And she said, no, 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 do something sour with fruit. Like that's like such a great combination. And so I, I've been playing around with that idea. If we could get our hands on some mezcal barrels and doing like a, getting a little bit of smoke from the barrel and then using it with like a tropical fruit or something like that as a way to have um, maybe a different impression of the smoke rather than on something that's, you know, bready, malty, roasty, uh, desserty, that sort of thing of having something that's a little bit more um, smoke and sour so, sounds like maybe a more um, unique combination. Um, but no, it's that's honestly it's it's the sort of thing I probably should do. I, we recently uh, ran out of the smoke base after about a year. Um, I should do that again, and that some something with um, acid I think would be a lot of fun. Either of you guys ever make it out to Wheatland Springs there in Virginia? I always love the uh, their beers, and it's also the concept that they're they're growing a lot of their hops and they're, they're working with like yeah. I just had their uh, porter the other night. Uh, I had an interview with uh, Phil from DC Beer. He does like an end of the year wrap up thing. And I gave him a four pack and he gave me uh, a bunch of their stuff. Um, I uh, hung out with them a little bit. Uh, a friend of ours was doing a thing at the Smithsonian has sort of a, a beer exhibit and they were doing a, a women in beer and climate change thing. And she brewed some beers for it. And I was talking to Bonnie from um, Wheatland Springs. So it's, uh, I, I I love breweries that are more specialized than we are. Um, that was our our goal starting out was to specialize, and it's so easy to have mission creep, and particularly when you're like people who are excited about beer, it's hard to be like, well, I own a brewery, but I'm not going to brew beers I'm excited about. I'm just going to. Um, but I I think that's really how you can make the most special beers is by really focusing on something, and um, places like Wheatland Springs that like really focus on local. Um, not every beer is going to be as good as it could be probably on the first batch um, because the, you have to learn a lot more when you're using local malts there's more inconsistencies and there's um, higher price points and there's less um, information out there where you know I can just look up online hey does Wireman, floor malted bohemian malt need a, a protein rest and there's 50 forum posts about you know making it I can't look that up for Murphy and Rude, or if I, particularly if you're growing your own stuff, you know, let alone. Um, but then I think you can, over time, you learn and you work with producers and you 
can start making beer that doesn't taste like the same things that everyone else makes. I think that's our biggest risk as like a brewing community is that like, as soon as we tell people what the recipe for our IPA is, someone can get 99% of the way there with, if they get good Citroen Galaxy hops and use the yeast we use, like, you know, and they do a reasonable job on water treatment and keep an oxygen out, like you can make a beer that's very similar to our beer. Um, but when we forage for ingredients, when we um, uh, use fun local barrels, when we have a house culture, <clears throat> those are things you could be there, you could brew with us for five years and go off and start your own brewery and your beers wouldn't taste the same if you moved to California because those fruits aren't available or those local maltsters aren't available. And you know, you could get the, the gist of it, but you wouldn't maybe get um, the whole thing. Whereas, uh, you know, if you, if you brewed with us for five years and then moved cross country, you could just make all our beers pretty much the same. So you brought up foraging a few times um, and you said you did that one collab and we have Beerberg here in Austin that does a lot of like local foraging. In fact, they encourage uh, local brewers from the area to go out to their like property and they'll forage for ingredients and everybody's like responsible for making a beer with at least one foraged ingredient. You know, other than acorns, you know, are there, are there other kind of cool foraging ingredients you've been using up there uh, in, in New England area? I think we kind of went uh, through so most we, of them, right? We, is there yeah. anything we left off earlier? I'm trying to think. I've, I've done some weird stuff. I've done uh, ale. Zero hops and it's it's pretty, it's actually really good with zero hops. I don't know how you make that consistently year round, but. We, we've done, uh, we didn't forage them, but we did uh, uh, fresh frozen uh, spruce tips from Spruce on Tap. Um, I did, um, I think it's called, was it Creeping Charlie Ale Hoof was sort of okay. We did green uh, walnut, Spencer did a green walnut thing once, which was kind of like a, I don't know, I thought it smelled like a dentist office, so that wasn't a big hit. Um, I'm trying to think what else, I got, we, we do a decent amount of like, uh, we just, I have a little herb garden in front of my house, so we've used uh, rosemary, we've used fig leaves, we've used lemon verbena. We've used, uh, I think we've used the, um, I didn't, I again, didn't love lavender. Um, we did a red bud, which is like a weird, uh, apparently they're used in salads. That really didn't bring much. We've used a bunch of the weird flowers off those things. So we did like rosemary flowers and sage flowers, maybe. Um, try to think if there's any other, any other weird ones that have been real hits. It's a, a lot of that stuff will like make it into a variant and we sort of know it's never going to be scaled up just because it's, it's, we're not going to get enough of it. Um, I've, uh, spice bush is another one that I foraged uh, that was in the scratch book, but uh, had sort of, I can't remember what, like it's sort of a chemical kind of thing. Um, it's, it smells pretty fun, but it definitely is not like um, super appealing. Uh, funny you mentioned spruce tips. I actually, that's, that was my, what my question was going to be about. Uh, I just had a mixed firm Saison with spruce tips and it was, I, I love spruce tips in a beer and I didn't yeah. really know how this was going to work. And it was unbelievable. Like mm. that sweet sprucey. I mean, it was dry, but it still felt full on the palate. It, the, the spruce flavor was incredible and fresh and it was a two-year-old bottle. So I was just, mm. I was blown away. Um, in regards to spruce tips with a mixed firm beer, 
what did you do for aging it on those spruce tips? Was it sitting there for months like you do with fruit or is it pretty quick and then you're tasting it every couple of days till you pull it off the, the spruce tips? Kind of what was your process with those? It was pretty quick. It was it was just a keg and it was, I believe that was a Saison with spruce tips. And that the, the other thing I've foraged from my backyard is um, uh, uh, Eastern Red Cedar, uh, Virginia, Virginia Juniper. Um, I think it had both of those. And it was supposed to be kind of like, I think it was our holiday party last year. Um, I think it was a pretty quick infusion, just a couple of days. I think anything like that, it's, I mean, it's almost like wet hopping. You know, there's just not a lot of, um, uh, and a lot to those things they extract pretty quickly. I don't think there'd be any necessarily harm in leaving it longer, but um, the flavor was pretty pronounced pretty quickly. And so maybe we could have gotten awesome. away with using less for longer or something like that, but um, I would think of something like that, yeah, as, as a, la a, a late addition. Um, I, in general, am fond of like anything you want to really taste, the later the better. Um, anything you want to add that sort of like integrate into the, the beer a little bit more, add it to the Whirlpool. Um, but I'm, I'm big on sort of post-firm additions like we do for the dry hops. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'll lower my own hand well so you don't have to. Um, I was going to ask about juniper, but you just talked about it. So I'll change the topic. And uh, recently... We, we, we use juniper berries, too. If you can't get your hands on, on regular juniper, we do an IPA with rosemary and juniper berries that turns out pretty well. That was actually very similar to what I was thinking about exploring next, but okay, great. I was going to talk about juniper. I, I'm going to change the topic and talk about cinnamon instead. Uh, so I had a, a few beers that I've tried to get like a cinnamon flavor to pair well, uh, but every time I've gotten any any end result, just cinnamon never is on the palate. Um, I think what I might be doing wrong is not putting enough cinnamon um, have you ever had any experience with adding cinnamon to beer? Yeah, I think Mike probably should take this one too, since he just kind of came up with a new uh, tincture way to, to to do it. But I think you probably didn't get enough cinnamon in because you were afraid of overdoing it. That's one of those that a little bit too much is way too much. And you get that just um, like spicy, harsh finish uh, with too much cinnamon. But um, I was also just I, using I, cinnamon sticks and just tossing them in. Well, there, yeah. Uh, well, there. So we did. Uh, I forget what the ratio was. You did was it when you made the tincture, Mike? Four, four to one uh, vodka to cinnamon. Yeah, and just kind of let that sit for for a week or so, and then you then you you're in that boat where you can kind of taste your beer with the tincture and then blend it um, into your final keg, um, mm. and that's always a, a huge advantage with especially with ingredients that are. Um, can go over the top very quickly, um, like, but when done right, can yeah. Hoping to add this to a hazy IPA tomorrow. Wish me luck. Was that jalapenos? Jalapenos, yeah, sitting on vodka. It's called Spice is Nice IPA. I, I think I want to call it Spice is Nice PA. Nice PA. <laughs> We we do a uh, Thai green curry inspired IPA that has serranos, galangal, coconut, uh, lime leaf, and uh, is that it? That I think, that, I think <laughs> that's. This was gonna go in with some lime zest and lime juice tomorrow. Nice. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, did uh, did you taste the the mole after the ambarana got pushed back in, Scott? Today. 
Yeah, so we did. Uh, Ambrana was like the most pronounced uh, oh, really? thing in that beer. Yeah, so we actually ended up going back um, back into the, the infusion. But um, but yeah, Ambrana is, a, is like a cinnamon kind of like, well, we used to call, say like cinnamon, uh, cinnabon, cinnabon kind of a beer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like a Brazilian um, wood that you can add. And, and wood's nice because it's usually the longest contact the, the more you get from it so you can kind of taste it as it's going and pull it when you want to when you get to that level you want um for cinnamon i'm i'm really fond of uh for a while we were buying like the spice house saigon cinnamon like chunks mm. super they have this like apple pie thing that's really good um, i was pretty happy with a uh spice house is both gotten more expensive and they've started just selling like uh like the little tiny chips of it. Um, there's a place on, I think it was Amazon. It's like slow food, uh, Vietnamese cinnamon that was really good and, and pretty reasonably priced. Um, I find aging directly on cinnamon. You, there's like an astringency thing you get just because it's wood and I assume it's got a lot of tannins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, do, doing like a concentrated um, extraction and then dosing the taste has been, uh, I, uh, I, hope it's legal i don't really know technically if i'm supposed to be doing that but you're we're allowed to have vanilla extract and i know a lot of breweries make their own vanilla extract um it's such a tiny amount of vodka i i hope that we don't get in trouble ever for it if anyone from the ttb is online and this is just a joke and we've never actually done this um but um something like that is just a nice way to yeah control how much you're adding and again you know you can just um we have like a little micro pipette and we just you know do blends in a glass measure out 100 grams of the beer on a scale dose in 200 microliters 400 microliters whatever it is get the flavor right and then scale that up and and then you can add exactly as much as you want and not have to time oh you know hey I'll, i'll put it on this weekend and taste it next weekend or i taste on wednesday it's already you know, far enough, I don't have time to do a transfer or pull it out or whatever. Um, it's, it's nice to have that level of control. And particularly if you want to play with a couple of, we did like a cinnamon roll stout for our holiday party and we had cinnamon and cardamom and like a caramel flavoring. And I could just sit there and do, okay, oh, you know, hey, yeah, this tastes good to me. I had to other people try out. Okay, apparently I don't like cinnamon as much as other people. Let's up the cinnamon, let's pull down the cardamom, try it again, you know, it's, um, quicker and easier and more repeatable than um, uh, just throwing all those things in or making your best guess and then not having any sort of levers to pull. So you always do a single spice tincture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, you can't always get away with that. Um, And there are certainly times where I just make my best guess. We did like a chai masala stout. I kind of just used a recipe as a guide and, and went for it. Um, We'll also do, like Scott was saying, like the Ambarana was in a brink by itself. So we could choose the Ambarana, yes or no. We probably should have done like the chili peppers in their own brink. So we could like, that would be like a separate lever, but all the chili peppers together. Um, but it sounds like it wasn't too spicy. We were, we were all nervous. There were a couple of habaneros in there. Yeah, well, it really wasn't, uh, uh, it, it didn't really have much of a tingle at all, actually, that, that final tingle on your tongue when you do a, a spice board beer but just like mike was saying like anytime you have the ability to scale anything it just it makes it it you spend so much time like for me it was like almost a weekend making a making a beer so it's it's you know i hate to have too much cinnamon or too much spice or, or something like that so um 
it's, it's, it's the same always- thing for my holiday cocktails is I just mixed like six different batches, I'll call it, and just tried to figure out which one worked best and passed it around the house until someone was like, yeah, that one's great. And I'm like, like we're going to scale that one up to a whole jug. I, I, what I wish I would have done as a home brewer, I had um, a couple of those one gallon um, corny kegs, those stackable, I forget what the brand is of those. Um, I wish I would have. Yeah, yeah, something like, yeah, just like that. But that, that would be a good way to uh, to make a tincture where, you know, you, you got your whatever, your cinnamon or your, your spice, uh, your habaneros or whatever in there. And you can pull off just a small amount of beer and not sacrifice a whole five gallon or 10 gallon batch and then blend whatever you want back in. As a home brewer, I, I used to have droppers of like several. I had like 10 different tinctures I made, cardamom. Um, I think I skipped rose petal. I think, you know, I had different clove, uh, all sorts of crazy tinctures. And I would literally just pour a glass of a beer, like, how does this work in a Hellas? Okay, that's what cardamom in Hellas is. What about porter? Okay, <laughs> maybe not what I want in a porter, but at least now I know what that tastes like. It's, I used to, I just would just add it to the glass, just doctor, like put the drops in, pour on top, and it's just a great way. And then you start doing really weird combinations. But I used to have a whole cabinet full of tinctures with droppers. My wife thought I was the, the crazy uh <laughs> dropper lady but anyways well, all of us work for science yeah not all of us cool well i i think most home brewers who are still doing it really are are passionate because it's easy to go out and buy beer these days i mean even compared to well i started drinking good beer you know 15 years ago you could go to a good beer store and get 600 beers but you'd go back six months later and 550 of the beers would be the same um, now, I mean, I, I can't keep up with what the breweries around us are doing. And like j- every couple of weeks, either like we accidentally name a beer too close to something that someone around the corner did, or like the brewery that just moved into town with us has the, the same beer name that we do, but we've done 780 beers and they've done 650 beers. You know, what are the odds that we don't accidentally cross over once in a while and they're very different beers and I don't really care. Um, but we just know no one even can keep up with what everyone else is doing let alone, yeah, what we're doing. We might have even named a, a beer the same name of two different beers. We, we don't even, can't even keep track of that. <laughs> so honestly, one of my, my, the worst things that happens is if I have a really good name, I use it for like a variant and I'm like, oh, I guess I used that up and now it could have been, you know, a cool mm-hmm. bottle label or something like that. It was just, you know, a beer we had on draft once for a day. <laughs> That's awesome. But now I, I should probably call it a night too, unless anyone has a final, final uh, last second. Uh, I just want we appreciate um, your time. We appreciate your literature. We appreciate what you guys do for, um, you know, homebrewers, because I know y'all started that way. And, and I think a lot of us really do just appreciate, uh, you know, especially the pro guys like you and Vinny and those guys that will come and take the time to speak to us. And we really do uh, appreciate that. And thank you so much for for spending this time with us today. So um, y'all, y'all do a lot for homebrewing. I'll do a lot for the industry. And we we do really do truly appreciate what you guys do for us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. And if anyone finds themselves in our area, stop by, say hi. We aren't always available, but, you know, ask and uh, say hi. Bring bring beer. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do. All right. All right. See you guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Good night. Thanks, guys.